the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of Aviation TV's Connected. I'm your host, David Danto, and I'm really excited about the show that we've put together for you today. This is going to be an interesting discussion um, related to what's been going on with the pandemic that we've all been living through. There are a lot of organizations and entities talking about how we're going into the, the future of the next few weeks and the next few months, going back into the office, going back to normal, and figuring out how we're going to adapt and move with those changes. Um, that's not what this, what this conversation is going to be about. This is going to be a conversation about trying to re- realize the culture change and the significant social changes that we're living through. Um, my friend Simon Dudley calls this an accession event. Um, there are a lot of interesting things that are happening right now that people aren't realizing that I believe are going to lead to significant changes. It's all speculation. So don't get too uh, upset if there's something that you don't like. But the point of this is so that you hear what we think is going to be happening and you can start to adapt as you need to so that you can be, you know, happy in life and successful in business. So I'm really excited and proud of the guests that I have on the show with me and my co-host this time. I'm going to ask each one of them to introduce themselves and I'm going to do it in order that it's on my screen from the Blue Jeans app. Thank you to Blue Jeans again for letting us use this. Um, Evan, why don't you introduce yourself, tell everybody who you are and what you do. Hi there, it's uh, Evan Kerstell coming to you from uh, an undisclosed location in southern New Hampshire, uh, just outside Boston. Um, I'm a social digital fanatic, and I work with clients to help drive awareness and visibility and engagement on, on social media channels in the B2B tech space. I do a lot in collaboration and communications and uh, I guess what we used to call telecoms. So that's an old-fashioned word, but one of which I use a lot. So thanks for having me. Thank you, Evan. We're an old-fashioned group of people. Tracy, why don't you go next? Absolutely. I'm Tracy Brower. I'm a sociologist. My PhD is in sociology, and I study work, workers, and workplace, as well as work life. I have a book called Bring Work to Life by Bringing Life to Work. I write for Forbes.com and for Fast Company, and I uh, also work at Steelcase, an awesome company, as a principal of our applied research team. Thank you very much, Tracy. Great to have somebody on the, uh, the, the webcast that isn't just a tech head like the rest of us. Erwin, um, why don't you introduce yourself and say hi? Sure. Hi, I'm Erwin Lazar, uh, Vice President and Service Director at Nemertes Research. We're uh, based in Mokini, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, and we spend our time gathering data from enterprise buyers of technology, trying to understand what they're buying, why they're buying it, how they're using it, and how they are succeeding or maybe not succeeding. Thank you very much, Erwin. That's terrific. Steve, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. And uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Steve Koenig, Vice President of Research at Consumer Technology Association, North America's largest technology trade association, and also, uh, as you may know, the owner and producer of CES, which, by the way, CES 2021 uh, is happening. Plans are, are already underway and have been for some time, and we'll have a, a lot more information coming forward on that sometime soon, and hope to see all of you there in Las Vegas in January. Eve, nothing would make me happier than being able to be in Vegas again in January without having to worry about getting sick and dying, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And then with this many stellar guests on the show, I've uh, asked uh, Tim to join us. Tim, introduce yourself as my co-host, and we'll make sure that I'm uh, asking fair and honest questions and getting the right conversation going. All right. Uh, my name is Tim Albright. 
I am, uh, I guess, the chief uh, bubble washer at AV Nation uh, Media, uh, and kind of honored. I, I've never co-hosted with David before, so this should be interesting. I think it's going to be a lot of fun and a great conversation. So we've only taken up four minutes at this point, so we've got plenty of time to keep going. All right, so so setting the stage for everybody and having this conversation, you know, I've been a remote worker for nearly two decades. Um, I've been writing about it. I've been, I've been telling everybody how terrific it is, how wonderful it is. I was in probably the less than 10% of, uh, of the world that believed that remote working was working. Um, the belief was that remote workers are lazy. The stereotype was they can't be managed. It's very difficult. And then we got into the, you know, I'm referring to it in some of my presentations as the um, the horrible perfect storm, you know, with, 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 you know, millions of people afflicted by a horrible disease, but knowledge workers as a result being forced to say, everybody jump into the deep end of the pool, work remotely, work from home. And in speaking to enterprise managers and a lot of other, you know, users of the technology, telling them, please tell me all your horror stories, tell me how it didn't work. Most of them have been coming back to me and saying, you know what, it's actually been fine. You know, and things like change control are probably going to change because we had always done like gradual rollouts and proof of concepts and throwing everybody into the deep end seems to have really worked. So as we then now have the situation where, again, after a treatment or a vaccine or whatever, people will be able to go back to work. Um, we're hearing from a lot of end users saying, why would I go back to work? Why would I add two hours of commuting back to my schedule and all the sweating and all the public transportation and all the rest of it? Why would I subject myself to that if this works? Not everyone. It's not for everyone, but it's for a lot of people. I'm already starting to see some results of that, and I'm sure you guys are as well, and you can certainly speak up as we go through this, but I'm already starting to see a flight out of you know larger cities into more suburban locations. Suburban real estate costs are going up. City real estate costs are going down in some cases. We're already see hearing from companies that have very large floor plans you know, in big cities starting to look like how they can shed some leases when that becomes available. What will happen? What will happen to our culture? What will happen to the way we live and, and everything else that we're doing? And what will the winners and losers be? So that's kind of really the, where I want to explore this is, you know, in three, four, five years, what will the changes have been? So first, Erwin, let me go to you and, and ask you, what have you heard from some of the enterprises that you've interviewed and some of the users about workers working from home and how many will stay with that kind of model? Yeah, we, we published a couple of studies that, on research we've done in April, May, and, and uh, April and May, I should say, um, finding that uh, over 90% of companies now support work from home, over 70% of employees are working from home. Uh, only eight, slightly over 8% told us that they don't plan to continue work from home. They really want to bring everyone back to the office. So I think that goes back to your point that we are seeing that work from home is not temporary, that uh, it, it is probably the, the new way of working, maybe with some modification where people go into work for uh, uh, occasional meetings, uh, one day a week, things like that. I think the big issue that companies are really trying to figure out right now is even if they want to bring people back, how do they do that safely? How do they uh, deal with things like capacity issues and uh, understand how many people can I have in the office at any given time and how do I space them out and, and so on? Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's for the temporary right now for the, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to get sick. But at some point there's going to be a vaccine or, you know, they've been looking for Corona vaccine viruses for, for vaccines for coronaviruses for years, there'll be a better treatment. At least some sort of medical intervention will come out and we won't it won't be as much about caution as it will be about lifestyle. And, and I guess the question really is, is, is now that we've realized, you know, the genie's out of the bottle with this is nine to five. Still, there is nine to five dead. Will 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 is five days a week dead? 
mean, I'm working for, you know, I work for Poly. You guys know the, 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 um, our, our, our VP of, uh, of strategy uh, said to everybody, take Friday off. You're all working too much. Now that you're at home and don't have anywhere to go, you're putting in too much productivity. You've got to take a mental break, which I think is wonderful. You know, is that going to change the nature of knowledge workers? Uh, yeah, I, I think it will. Um, you know, I think in in terms of the normal work week, you you find that people don't take that time where they would have been working and use it for something else, like listening to an audio book that you know a lot of people do on the way to work and so on. So yeah, people are putting in more hours. Uh, we haven't done any primary research ourselves, but I've seen some studies from others that say that the work week has been longer. I think the big issue that companies have been struggling with that we've seen in our research is how do I continue to engage with people and make them feel like they're part of a company? Uh, that they're not, not isolated, that their work is recognized, that they have the ability to learn from others and to communicate, collaborate around products. So we've seen tremendous investment in team collaboration applications, video applications. 60% of the, the participants in our study that we published last week do social kind of activities through video, meaning they have uh, afternoon happy hours, lunch and learns, um, play games, you know, anything to kind of give those home workers that ability to, to communicate and collaborate. Yeah, this is Tracy. I was um, really loving what you were saying, Erwin. I think that um, one of the really interesting things about the shift in terms of work is that it's really going to end up being a both and. You know, like we're seeing lots and lots more people who are working remote and really appreciating their home offices, but home office can also be exhausting. So it's not a panacea by itself. And so what we're hearing from lots of companies is that home office will become part of this holistic ecosystem where we give people even more choice and maybe more control over their schedules. So I don't know if nine to five is dead. I think that nine to five may flex in that as we give people more control and more choices, not just about where they work or how they work, but when they work, we'll see that start to really shift. I think the other point you made, Erwin, is really, really important. And that's all about connection and community. I think that's one of the things that we're hearing from people. Um, there's a study that looks at um, social isolation and 75% of people are feeling a level of social isolation. 67% of people are feeling stressed. 57% of people are feeling a level of anxiety. And interestingly, those things are higher the longer they work from home. And so we are craving connections. Our instinct as herd animals or tribe animals or connected human beings is to um, have strength and numbers and get together when we're going through something hard. And so this isolation, while it's been wonderful on one hand to be close to our families and in our home offices, we also crave for that connection. And we can meet those needs uh, virtually and through technology in really wonderful new ways, but it's not all that we need. So I think it's going to end up being a both and in terms of where we're working and when we're working. Yeah, yeah no, that's a, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Steve. I would like to add is just, uh, I mean, I agree with most of the uh, perspective thus far, but I think it's important to point out that, that this whole dynamic and, and thinking about uh, the forward path, I mean, this is not a one-size-fits-all proposition, is it? I mean, it, there are a lot of variables in this, and, and in our research, when we, when we saw and, and all of us uh, witnessed this, this sudden collision of, of work and home, uh, for, for some people, that was relatively easy. For others, certainly... Uh, workers with families and, and young children who are trying to finish school, you know, there was no shortage of friction. Uh, and I think by now things have started to work out. And, and our hypothesis is that, that certainly as we, we come out of the crisis, there will 
be a remnant of this new American remote workforce that has just, just been uh, deployed everywhere these days. There's gonna be a remnant of that. But again, I think it's a very, very much a, a question for businesses uh, individually, because there are some, some, li some lines of business where really, uh, and this is what we're hearing from our constituency, is that people are already starting to travel again and, and have in-person meetings again, site visits and so forth, why? Well, because it's crucial to their business. As one example, uh, a lot of different tech companies are, are in some case, they're, they're reshoring operations. And when you've got bringing operations back from say Asia or elsewhere, you know, that's, that's a hands-on thing. You can't really do that virtual. So again, it's not a one size fits all. I think the good news is, is that we've proven productivity with these digital tools. And I, I can't imagine if this dynamic had manifest back during the 2003 SARS crisis. I mean, we didn't have the connectivity. We certainly didn't have half as many of these tools. We would have probably just had a, a we didn't even have smartphones, let's be honest. So, so we would have been dialing and, and on the phone probably constantly. It would have been very, very different and probably much more catastrophic to the economy and business overall. But again, I just want to reiterate, not a one size fits all. It's, there's many permutations and combinations here and, and certainly a lot of variables to consider. Well, I think that the um, the the point that that I agree with what you're saying. The the point being that the pendulum is going to swing from one direction to another. We were all forced to stay at home, or many of us was were forced. And at some point, we're going to be in a situation where we're going to travel. Some are starting now. Some will start when they feel more comfortable. Um, but we're going to do it when we need to. So if I need to be at a client site or if I need to be at a factory, or if I need to be at a big brainstorming meeting in my office, or an anniversary of an employee, I'm going to travel and go in to be part of that camaraderie, part of that essential part of my business. But if I don't have anything to do today, if I'm just going to be sitting in front of my computer or my technology, there's no reason to have the commute. And what that does is that sort of frees up the ability for us to decide to live somewhere other than an hour, an hour and a half from our workplace. Maybe I like country life better. Maybe I like, want to be where my kids are close to their schools or where my parents are right now or, or, or where it's more hustle and bustle or less hustle and bustle. I can make that decision as long as I'm you know, within an hour of an airport and can get wherever I need to go or within an hour or two of what I need to. So, so that's going to be really this culture change is that I don't really need to live in or near a big city anymore. Evan, you haven't had a chance to talk about any of this and you're our social media expert. What are you seeing in terms of the opinions and people talking and everything else? You know, am I am I onto something here or do you think it's just going to be, you know, when everything's healthy, everybody's going to just flip right back? Well, I really think it's going to vary tremendously by function and, and profession and role uh, in your organization. And, and frankly, there are a lot of folks who um, are going to have to change the way they work and how they work. I spent 30 years in sales and marketing. We've seen a tremendous shift to digital. Uh, and things like uh, events, and I think no matter how we proceed, how quickly, we're in a new world of hybrid, whether it's uh, selling and, and selling through social and digital channels, whether it's marketing and, and meeting customers through digital channels, the world is never going to be uh, back the way it was. And I think folks need to wake up to this new reality and equip their, their sales force to, to leverage uh, social and digital channels to sell and to prospect. We used to call it inside sales. Now it's frankly just become sales. You're going to have to change the marketing mindset to uh, 
really focusing on uh, just events or maybe large, small events to a much more complex landscape of digital platforms and and uh, and social media marketing. So this is really forcing us all to change the way we work. And, you know, if you're a doctor, you, you know, you're going to be sitting in front of a PC meeting more uh, patients, a.k.a. clients. So the whole world of work is is being transformed. I think ultimately for for good, but it's, it's a very painful process. I agree. I think you've seen the uh, the social media meme uh, asking uh, who has been the most responsible for your company's digital transformation, the CEO, the CIO, or COVID-19. Um, you know, it's put a lot of people in a lot of things. You know, I've had FaceTime meetings with my doctors who in the Northeast have been too litigious to even consider telehealth. But, you know, I guess they care more about living than they do about litigation. So all of a sudden the floodgates opened. It's definitely been a um, an impetus for me. Yeah, we, we went from 2% telehealth utilization to 70% in a matter of uh, weeks uh, due to both uh, regulatory changes and of course, unwillingness to go to the doctor. And that's that same dynamic in different ways has affected almost every industry and vertical uh, we can imagine from going into the bank branch to calling into a contact center. So uh, these changes are pretty profound. Yeah, yeah that's re really well said. Uh, and. Uh, I think just to, to add to that, I mean, we've done a lot of research uh, amid this crisis looking at consumer behavior and also examining various tech trends. And, and a couple of key themes that have emerged from our study is, one is that the health crisis has really accelerated a number of pre-existing uptrends. And I would put it the salient of that, digital transformation. I mean, think about all these different industries. Evan, you mentioned telemedicine, that's certainly one retail is another and and certainly retailers and those operations that have been able to pivot quickly have done well and i'm talking about uh, like walmart and best buy and and, and there are a host of others uh, and then there are others that uh, have not been able to uh, adjust as well and are and are very likely suffering but but digital transformation uh we're seeing a lot of 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 demand for for enterprise solutions to this migration to cloud there's a lot of research out there that uh, has some great data supporting that. But uh, digital transformation was, was a thing, uh, but now it is like one of the most important things uh, for, for businesses. Yeah. I want to bring up something here because David's talked about this a couple of times and, and you can, yes, you can, you can, if you're a remote worker, you can pretty much live wherever you want to. Um, and you can do your job wherever you want to. That's the power of the digital transformation. That's the power of work from home. And I guess, Tracy, I want to start with you just because of the sociology uh, part of this. But companies like Facebook and, and other type, uh, Silicon Valley companies are saying, sure, absolutely. Google said, you know, nobody's coming into the office for the rest of 2020. Um, but there are a number of them that are saying, certainly, you can, if your job is capable, you can certainly work wherever you want. However, your paycheck, your the, the salary that you were making, uh, when we hired you to live and work in Silicon Valley was based on a certain standard of living. Should you choose to work from home or should you choose to live elsewhere other than California, your your salary may be adjusted for that. Tracy, is this something where this might very well stop this or, or kind of uh, slow it down a little bit where folks who are, you know, if, if I'm, I, I live outside of St. Louis, right? The Midwest is, is historically uh, cost of living is lower than, let's say, you know, San Francisco or even Southern California. 
So if I'm living there and working there now, I choose to move my family to a more, um, you know, a less standard of living area. That balance there between, you know, I, and, and and my my salary may get cut. That might uh, stop some of some of the work from home stuff. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think having worked in HR over years in my career, the cost of living adjustment is always based on the living location. Um, and it's always based on the idea that you need to be part of the community that you're living in. And so I think that's going to make a difference. And I, I really think that it's going to be a hybrid model. I really believe that there is something um, special about the office. And we can work from home. We can do everything from home. We can eat. We can work out. We can work. We can, um, we've really moved from a retrieve model to a receive model. But we don't want to. Um, our brains crave stimulation and variety and we need to move and we're more healthy when we move and have variety. And so that is true of all of the aspects of our work and all of the aspects of our social lives. And it's really important for how we connect. And so I think these companies that are kind of all about one way are probably being a little bit too myopic. And my belief is that they may, we may in the short term have lots more work from home. That's going to be pre-vaccine. Once we get to post-vaccine, vaccine and we go a little less from the now and the near to the far, I absolutely believe that the office is going to have a place. The workplace, however we define it, is going to have a place going forward. Work from home will be part of that, but it will be part of a holistic ecosystem. And so what's really important is that the humanity of our coming together is critical. Um, there's a wonderful set of research by Susan Pinker that she writes up in a book called The Village Effect. And actually, we are significantly more healthy mentally, physically, emotionally, cognitively, when we have a human connection that's not just virtual interface. Um, so that's going to be important for how we come together in our workplaces. Um, and the other thing that's really important to think about is social capital. Um, a lot of times it's easy to go home from work and kind of get everything done when you already have a lot of social capital in an organization. I know people. I know how to get things done. I kind of know how the organization works. But when we onboard people and when people shift roles, that is a really critical time for people to develop relationships. And those relationships are best developed in person. So I think it's a both and. Um, I think it was Steve who used the um, word, or actually it was Evan who used the word um, hybrid. We're going to have a hybrid approach for sure. And I think the other thing that's interesting is we are so much more conscious about how we're working and what we're doing. And so I believe that as we think about the work we need to get done, that can help us decide where we're going to do it. The consciousness about the value of place, the consciousness about the work we're trying to do will increasingly drive where we're doing it and with whom we're doing it. Just to add to that, I think the um, the wild card is still the, the, the folks responsible for corporate real estate. Uh, we found in our study that about 24% of companies are starting to look at can they reduce real estate footprint. Uh, you know, if if people in who are responsible for spending money on real estate start to think, you know, boy, there's a tremendous opportunity to close down our offices and push people away. Does that then create an environment where you take away that option, where, where it becomes almost mandatory for everyone to work from home? And then do organizations understand what that means? And, and you know, to Tracy's points, what happens to culture when people are 
you know, fully virtual. Uh, we were, I've been, a vir our company's been virtual since we were founded in 2002. And it is challenging to bring people into the environment that aren't used to it. That first year, you know, morning calls, afternoon calls, evening calls to make sure that they know that somebody's looking out for them and, and recognizes the work that they're doing and helps answer those questions, build that mentor relationship and so on. That's really hard to do in a large company, I think, when, you know, suddenly, okay, everyone, we think work from home is great and we can save, you know, X amount of millions of dollars in real estate. See ya. Yeah, you know, we've been talking to lots and lots of customers and we're seeing a strong pull out of cities um, because of the commute, not just the commute to the office, but within the office. How are you going to get people up and down elevators and escalators and it's going to take you an hour just to get to the 24th floor, right? Um, and so one of the things we're seeing is that many companies are thinking about a hub and spoke model with more emphasis on spoke than what they've had before. So how might we really think consciously about the purpose for the office? The hub may be all about co-creation, collaboration, community, the things we can't do in other places. But then we may have more spoke locations, which are gonna be about focus and about kind of the need to get out of the home office, but realizing that we don't need the commute or the conference room or the coffee bar for that particular kind of work. And so we're seeing definitely this trend around real estate shifting. The other thing we're hearing real estate um, leaders say is they're looking for leases that are shorter term. Um, they don't wanna be locked into long-term leases, of course. And they're saying, you know, uh, real estate and urban environments is a steal right now, and so some of them are also snapping it up. So that, too, we're kind of seeing as a both and in terms of the trends from real estate leaders, keeping hub locations, being really planful and purposeful about those, and then expanding spoke kind of locations. The other thing we're hearing is that they want control over those spoke locations so they can control cleanliness and safety and security, um, and so they're really wanting to kind of have those within their own real estate portfolio. So Tracy, you're making an excellent point, and I want to make sure that we focus on it just for a second, and then I know Evan, you have a comment as well. Um, the nature of the office, and again, we're thinking three, four, five, six, seven years out. The office, the way we envisioned it pre-COVID-19 was a place for knowledge workers, was a place where we go to sit down at either our desk or a hot desk or a shared desk and work at a keyboard and, 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 and look at a screen and maybe have a meeting here or there, and, you know, and take care of our personal items in a pantry or whatever but it was a place where knowledge workers worked. I can't imagine post COVID-19 that smart organizations are going to still think of that as the role of the office because we can do that work better remotely. We will see changes probably in the real estate market where you know, you'll see a two bedroom, two bathroom, two workstation apartment or house or whatever because you need to have a place to go to in the home and we've all talked about that kind of expertise. So the office will become a place for that camaraderie for that brainstorming. I think you'll see a lot less desks and a lot more areas where people can collide and work together because that's essentially going to be its point going forward. Um, and I think that that's an important transition for us to recognize. Uh, Evan, you want to comment? No, I just thought I'd uh, chime in with the, the point that there's a large segment of our workforce and our society that's that's been left out of this movement to work from home. They can't work from home. If you're in a low wage job or, um, you know, in a role that doesn't allow a typical blue collar role that doesn't allow you to the luxury of sitting at your at home or having a home office, then you're 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 you've been severely impacted and traumatized by these events. And, and I do worry that, um, you, you know, where the inequality that has existed in our society 
uh, racial and otherwise, is going to be terribly exacerbated by some of these trends where you'll have a sort of uh, elite ca class of which I'm uh, uh, included and I'm, I'm doing extremely well, as are the folks on this call, and another class who, frankly, uh, will sort of be left behind uh, from both the technology side and the move to distributed organizations and won't be able to take advantage of these these tools. So, you know, I hope there's a way we can reimagine some forms of work and some forms of uh, our economy in ways that, you know, can include uh, folks who aren't uh, in the sort of white collar educated side of uh, uh, of, the, of the economy, particularly now as we're, there's so much strife and and turmoil and folks being left behind. So just uh, just a thought uh, no, I mean, it's beyond. A, it's yeah. It's a great point, and 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 you know we have to kind of talk about two different pieces of that. One of them is the concept that the broadband that we're dealing with right now, the ac the access to broadband, the access to devices, the access to systems, um, is 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 a bit of a privilege in our society, and we need to work away from that being the case. It needs to be more of a utility. Um, but the other piece of that, and kind of where I want to focus everybody on their conversation here, is is if you know, and again, you have to follow the mental logic on this one. If not a lot of people are going to come into cities, if more of them are going to go to these spoke locations, if people will move out of urban areas more into suburban and rural, will the blue collar jobs exist the way they did or will they have to move as well? Will there be as many restaurants? Will there be as many taxis? Will there be, you know, clearly there will always be a service economy and there will always be service and blue collar jobs, but how will they change as we become a more decentralized global society? So, you know, Tracy, you had a comment on that and, and then uh, Steve I'd like to go with you because I'd like to talk about how technology is kind of helping both of those issues so so go ahead Tracy yeah thank you thank you yeah I, I love the points I think that one of the things that's gonna happen is in these spoke locations all of those services are gonna blossom around spoke locations so I think that we're gonna see less density but we're gonna see similar kinds of services that are available to people so that will be interesting I think the other point about equity and access has to do with both a responsibility on the part of communities and a responsibility on the part of companies. And I think that's going to be really, really interesting, right? Like part of what allows people to work from home is the infrastructure that allows me to have Wi-Fi access and all of that. And that's a community responsibility, right? A city or a state responsibility primarily. Um, and then companies, I think, are increasingly taking responsibility to provide equipment in new kinds of ways. We um, work with one organization and everyone was sent home overnight and they were a desktop computer organization and they ordered thousands of laptops over a period of, you know, two days and everybody opened the box and took out a laptop and needed IT support. And so interesting the way that company relationships with communities, company responsibilities to communities through end users are being expanded. And we can think about the collaboration between companies and communities in some really new ways. Steve, how does the, the what we're talking about with this, with how cities and how it's going to be a connectivity, you know, being more of a utility and all the rest of it, how, how do technologies help play in that? You know, I'm, I, top of my mind, I think of smart cities, I think of 5G, I think of a number of things that are going to help level the playing field and help move this change along. What is your research saying and what's your opinion on it? 
Well, well, David, you brought up a, a couple of great points with with smart cities and 5G, and and yeah, whilst uh, it's it's true we may see some some urban flight uh, out to the suburbs and so forth, I think it's important to remember that that these trends are going to play out over a long time series, certainly this decade and probably beyond. And just thinking about the urban environment, and and to tie back to the the previous comments on on less office space and less of a need, and maybe kind of the downsizing of all these office buildings and certainly here in the dc metro area erwin would attest to this we've got no shortage of, of density of office space and so it would kind of be nice if uh if some of those buildings maybe went away more green space and some of this is already starting to happen uh witness for example in vancouver british columbia they have just green lighted uh 50 kilometers worth of so-called slow streets now now what do i mean by that Slow streets are essentially, you guessed it, they're, they're pedestrian friendly, bike friendly, uh, where, where residents just have more ready access to, to local business, no cars. Uh, maybe we would see some, some short distance, last mile delivery robots uh, operating there. But, but uh, literally and figuratively, what does that pave the way for? Well, for more smart cities tech. So, so smart kiosks, maybe cameras for public safety and, and these things. Uh, but the, it, I think what we'll find maybe over the next 20, certainly 30 years is, is our urban areas will likely become greener, which is going to be healthier. So we actually may see a lot of folks really, maybe now they want to move out, uh, but maybe they want to move back in. Uh, to Tracy's point, to be closer, I mean, we are, uh, Tracy, you said it better, but uh, I mean, it's like, you know, we are uh, social creatures. So let's, uh, we, we need to collaborate physically. Uh, but Connectivity, 5G, I mean, this is certainly the answer and, and we're, we're seeing our networks propagate across America uh, and that's crucial to America's competitiveness on the, the global stage, uh, certainly in this decade. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I have colleagues at CTA that uh, obviously are working from home like we all are, uh, but uh, they live pretty far afield and connectivity is a real challenge. And I think 5G is gonna remedy that, but that's gonna take a little bit of time. So I'd be a little cautious about all the urban flight and people wanting to move out. Maybe that happens eventually. Uh, but the other consideration, and this is maybe getting beyond technology, but certainly as a function of technology that we haven't discussed yet, is just the reskilling of workers and, and, the, and the other product of, of all this, this technology, innovation, automation, artificial intelligence, and so forth. Just thinking about workers in general, and at, at CTA we have a 21st century uh, American Workforce Council that's really focused on all this uh, because the whole nature of the American workforce is, is changing before our eyes. And remember what I said before is that the, the health crisis has really accelerated a number of existing uptrends. And certainly this, this uh, move towards digital transformation, automation, and so forth, I don't think a lot of these jobs in, in many industries are, are going to come back because people are looking to automate. Why? Well, because they want to reduce the number of workers on the factory floor. Uh, maybe they can't add a third shift or people don't want to work uh, in the small hours of the night. So these are some other considerations, but, but technology, I think 5G is certainly a key ingredient to, to foster uh, this, this change that we're starting to see already. Steve, I want to uh, t kind of take two different uh, talk talking points here. One is is Tracy's talking about the spokes, right? The the far end, the 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 outside of of the cities, and look at that from a a, a rural standpoint, right? If if we do start moving outside of the of the cities for these kind of spoke locations, one of the aspects, and you already talked about it here with your coworkers, 
the farther you get away from city centers, the less the, the less uh, profitable broadband is, right? And and 5G is certainly going to be something that, that folks can, can lean on, but it, you still have to get the pipe there, right? You still have to get the fiber out there to deliver the 5G. So is this something where, you know, um, non-government, non-governmental organizations, NG, NG, uh, uh, O's are going to be able to kind of leverage their, their kind of influence and say, look, you know, U.S. government, do what you did in the 70s, right? In the 1970s, if, if you're too young to remember this, because I'm not, uh, the, the government, the government passed a, passed a bill and said, we're going to, we're going to run cable out to these, these rural areas. Because it wasn't profitable, right? It wasn't there wasn't a, a profit there for the cable companies, but the government said it was it was necessary to deliver services to those in, in those far out areas. Same thing here, right? Where the internet has become, David said it, a utility at this point, where we're going to have to be able to take it out there to those folks, and then that's going to you know help uh, Tracy's point here of, of kind of fostering and flowering those 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 spoke areas. Yeah, Tim, you're right, uh, and uh, I think the answer is public-private partnerships. That's certainly what we've witnessed thus far in smart cities because there's a lot of competition for tax dollars. And if you're talking about explore, uh, uh, deploying, uh, you know, advanced technology around town, maybe it's camera systems or something like that, uh, or giving teachers a pay rise and so forth and whatnot, uh, there's no shortage of competition. So we, we've seen a lot of success in smart cities with, with public-private partnerships, and I think 5G will be related to that. So there's less of a need for the, for the backhaul. Uh, a lot of this 5G can operate wirelessly, uh, and we're seeing residential broadband uh, start to emerge uh, that, that is wireless. So that's some good news. Uh, but I think the beachhead for getting really robust connectivity uh, out to rural communities uh, are, are what we find typically out in rural areas, which are our farms. Uh, so farms, there's a, actually, uh, if you take a look back at, at CES 2020 and one of our uh, exhibitors, John Deere, uh, and the just tremendous uh, connected, fully automated technology that they had, I, I think they had this, it was a sprayer, if I remember correctly, that had an enormous wingspan. But the, the technology on that piece of farm equipment was congruent with the most advanced self-driving vehicle. And in fact, probably even more because it, it, it rendered military precision to spraying. So it could, instead of just basically, like if you think about like just crop dusting a whole field, I mean, it could almost surgically pinpoint weeds and with, with computer vision identify those little, little uh, weeds and, and, and address them so they're using less chemicals. Fantastic. Uh, but connectivity is part of what makes all this stuff happen, along with advanced analytics uh, so and predictive analytics. So the farmer knows, okay, well, I'm going to be able to harvest X much grain, and so maybe I can commit today to that futures price and capture it while it's still high. So I think that becomes a beachhead, and then we can extend out to more rural communities. Uh, again, 5G is incredibly important to the uh, economy of the United States and our global competitiveness. So... I think with public-private partnerships, uh, the economics will be there to support 5G deployment uh, eventually. But of course, where are we starting now? In, in more dense urban areas, because that's where the customers are. But the, the, the typical customer, the consumer for wireless uh, in a 5G world uh, is, is actually gonna take a back seat to the business and the enterprise customer. Because it's important to remember that 5G is the first wireless generation that will actually be like 
excuse me, led by the enterprise uh, and not the consumer. Yeah, we have definitely seen the need for better connectivity uh, for home workers. Um, we asked in our last study, what are the biggest challenges you're having with supporting work from home? And obviously managing remote employees is, is definitely the top, but beyond that, it was home internet, home Wi-Fi, video quality, voice quality. We found that organizations where IT organizations with, within companies begin to think of that home office as something that I need to actively manage are seeing uh, higher success by a variety of metrics that we use to, to measure success. So the, the definition of what an office is from an IT perspective it has changed to, you know, I need to take responsibility for helping consumers uh, pick the right internet plan, helping make sure that, that I should say employees, not consumers, uh, that they have coverage in their home, that they have the right Wi-Fi access point and so on. So, you know, fundamentally, this is changing the relationship between IT and, and workers within organizations. Yeah, and Erwin, you know, you make the, the point about uh, people selecting their home technology. It's definitely going to be something that, that enterprises are going to drive, especially when you think about, you know, this is something that you guys, people who have listened to me on webcast before know I call the flush test. It's not enough to put in the toilet and flush it and make sure that it works. You have to ask everybody in the neighborhood to flush at the same time to make sure that the pipes don't explode. Um, you know, we, we've all tested our home networks. Yeah, I was able to see you and hear you with the little camera on my tablet, um, and I was able to connect, but I didn't do that test when I was, you know, presenting to a big meeting when my wife is also on a business call and my kids are doing distance learning. We never really did a stress test. So you're going to start to see formulas for people. If you're going to be working from home, here's what the formula is for your bandwidth. Here's what the formula is for your technology. And Erwin, really quickly, the other point that you made before we pivot here that I think is really important, and I kind of want to bring this up from my background, there are good managers that can manage remote workforces by necessity that have existed for 20 or 30 years. I managed a broadcast entity where I had a 24 by seven staff. I couldn't be there with all of them 24 by seven. I had to figure out how to over communicate to gauge what their sentiments are, what their feelings are. Sure, sometimes we would get together, but that would be the exception. Same thing when I managed a global staff. You know, when I had people that were reporting to me in different countries and different geographies, sometimes I was up at different hours. Sometimes I was, uh, you know, visiting them. Them, but the majority of the time as a remote manager was to have the skill set to be able to keep them engaged and aware and communicative and, and manage them based on their deliverables, not based on their hours in the office. And I think that skill is going to be growing exponentially as we move forward into this next thing. A lot of old managers aren't going to make the transition. So um, I, I threw a couple of things out there. Let me let anybody else comment who wants to. But then I definitely want to talk about winners and losers in this. So any, any comments on that? Well, David, I would just say uh, welcome to the 21st century uh, because, yeah, I mean, the, no shortage of global teams these days, globalizations uh, in effect uh, largely in a, in a lot of organizations are operating globally. Uh, and so I think, again, it's important to remember that, that uh, these trends are going to play out over a longer time series and, and certainly – uh, those managers that can pivot well, but but this is part of what uh, a lot of people have described as uh, the emerging new normal, uh, and I think that a lot of adjustments are going to have to be made, and and I think most will be successful, uh, and and more. Uh, we were talking about the nine to five earlier, and and I my take is is that that nine the typical nine to five, of course, uh, it it depends, but for for a lot of us, generally speaking, that's been dead for a while. I mean, we've had flexible work schedules, I mean, at least for the most part. 
Uh, and it's, of course, there are some industries like if you're you're a trader on Wall Street, you you don't have the the benefit of, of flexing your time. You need to be there when the when the bell sounds uh, for obvious reasons. But but yeah, I think this uh, this new dynamic of of this hybrid model, as we've discussed here, uh, stays in place. Uh, and I think the good news is that most of us with these digital tools have been able to adjust uh, and move forward effectively. Yeah, I would just jump in, too, on your comments, David, about leadership. I think you're absolutely right there in terms of mediocre leaders are not going to survive. When we go through cataclysmic times, leadership has to rise to the occasion, and there's just no room for mediocrity. And you said some wonderful things about what leaders need to do, setting expectations, et cetera. I would add just a couple of things. One, I would add that leaders need to successfully set a vision, and that needs to be optimistic and compelling in the midst of absolute ambiguity and uncertainty. Um, we know that's always important. It's more important than ever, and it's harder than ever. I think that's one. Another is I think leaders need to do a great job of aligning people's work with what that vision is. I've got to have line of sight, figuratively speaking, between what I do and my contribution and what's important about that to the customer and to the people in the value chain. That's secondly. Thirdly, I think the leaders that do best are going to be the ones who are really good at information density. There's a brilliant book um, by General McChrystal called Team of Teams, and one of the reasons that he succeeded in Afghanistan was counterculturally, more people had more information more immediately than ever, so they could make really good decisions. And in a distributed environment where everybody's working everywhere, we have got to have access to information. So we need that information density and that transparency from leadership. And finally, leaders need to be brilliant about team cohesion, bringing people together in new ways, in constant ways, in ways that are empathetic and in ways that are really appropriate to their work and to their personal needs and desires. So I think it's all about that. And leadership is kind of that balance. You've got to kind of walk on water, but you can't possibly be perfect. So it's really about being as excellent as you can and being transparent about your own learning over Yeah, just to end, uh, end the call on a positive note, I think most companies will, will fail uh, in this process. Uh, we'll, we'll see, we're, we're seeing a, a huge rise in bankruptcies, uh, unprecedented rise in bankruptcies due to the financial crisis. I think there are weak players who uh, sadly are, 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 are even weaker, you know, and will be acquired due to the financial meltdown. I think the strong players will emerge even stronger. I mean, we're, we're living in Amazon's world now, and, and, uh, and, and they're just going to get stronger. And I think the companies that, uh, to no fault of their own in aviation, hospitality, and in some of the event space who relied on that intimate human contact are, are through no fault of their own being terribly damaged. I mean, look at aviation. I, I went to the Paris Air Show last year. You think that's going to happen this year, given what's happened, not just in, in large events, but in the aviation specter, a, a sector up and down the supply chain. So, you know, as we go forward, I just think we should go forward with open eyes to uh, to the reality and 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 navigate the best as we can. And like you said, leaders will will help us get through it. But uh, it's going to be a very very challenging time. Yeah, I completely agree, Evan. And I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is every business model at some level is built on density. And so companies that win will be the companies that are able to deliver more value with less density, right? And I think the other thing to think about is 
who are the winners going to be in terms of home? Like we're all nesting, we're valuing our homes, we're investing in our homes, we're doing puzzles and redoing our decks, we're using more at home. I think the winners will be people who are um, able to deliver safety and security as their core competence, but also companies that deliver a perception of safety and security and their other needs. And I think the other thing to think about is life cycle. We've been hearing about, you know, maybe there's a baby boom coming out of this. And so you can follow the life cycle in terms of who's going to win. It's going to be, you know, the people who manufacture diapers and then the people who manufacture toddler toys and then the people who you can fill in the blanks. So I think it's interesting to think about who those winners and losers will be and who can pivot their models of business and their models for density and delivering value in really new ways. Tracy, we've got about 10 minutes left here, and that's actually where I wanted to go with our last 10 minutes, which is, you know, I, I could have this conversation for hours and hours, preferably in person, you know, near a shoreline with alcohol involved, but still, <laughs> I, I love having these conversations, but people watch the show because they say, okay, now that I know that, what do I do? So for, for you know, technologists, for, for AV people that watch these show, for integrators, for people who are just wondering where's their next career coming from, let's all go around the horn here and let's talk about what are the winners and losers, not so much with, you know, playing a, you know, a funeral dirge for the people that aren't going to make it because there will be a lot of unfortunate casualties that no one could have predicted. But now that we are in the predicting business, where should people be pivoting to for careers, for locations? For businesses, what's going to come out really good versus what do we think as dated? So anybody want to jump in first and then I'll just go around the horn? Ooh, no volunteers. Well, I'll go ahead. I'll start first. Go ahead, go ahead, because I, I know I'm co-hosting it, but I'll, I'll give you my two cents on this. And and it goes back to what we've all talked about here is is the infrastructure, right? We we, we need connectivity regardless of where we are. So you've got the network ad, ad, admins who are going to be not only developing and, and sending us all into our various spokes. And I, I'm, I'm going to keep using that, Tracy, because I love that that idea and that, that terminology. Um, but it's also going to be the folks who are helping them work from home. And when we talked about this a little bit, you know, it used to be 10, 20 years ago when, when David started working remotely, he probably went to Best Buy or Circuit City at the time and grabbed a Linksys router, right? And, and, and he was able to set up his home network. Now that that is becoming an extension of the corporate network, that's becoming an extension of the corporate land, the net admins and the folks that are responsible for those computers and those laptops that are going home are also going to be in some way responsible for the security and the speed of those those connectivities at home. So we're going to see, you know, those folks, the security administrators, the, the security uh, experts also uh, getting uh, a boost in, in their uh, in, in their numbers, and I think that's one of the areas where you can absolutely win in the next five to ten years. I'll jump cool. in real quick. I, I think the, a big opportunity is in uh, workplace instrumentation. So as people do start coming back to the workplace in this hybrid model that we've talked about, maybe you know a couple of days a week or certain times, uh, having knowledge to know what they're doing, where they are, how many people are in the place, um, if there is an outbreak, who interacted with who. Uh, all of that is going to involve, I think, partnerships between IT, HR, facilities that really don't exist in, in a lot of organizations today. And I think the other part of it is engagement for, for people at home. Uh, again, as people go through this transition where today uh, or yesterday I went to the office five days a week to now I'm home. Uh, obviously, we've talked about uh, some of the benefits of that, but there's also some of the downside to it. And I think organizations that succeed are ones where they will have insight to understand what's that impact on turnover? What's that impact on productivity? How happy are those workers? How much do they feel that they're engaging and their work is being noticed and so on? So I think uh, analytics, social sciences, 
facilities, HR, uh, IT, all, all need to converge to, to really figure out how do we manage this workplace of the future. So, Steve, I, I, I sometimes, uh, all, all the time, attend the, uh, the the Emerging Trends presentations you do in in New York in October, November. I don't know if it'll be happening this year, and I don't know if you're going to go to it anyway, but uh, but um, what do you think in terms of the trends and areas that, that companies and people should be investing in that are emerging going forward? Well, thank you, and, and uh, yeah, I hope to see you at those events, uh, uh, either in person or virtual. But in any case, I mean, as the, the technology advocate, I would, I would advise, you know, the answer to the question, you know, what do we do now uh, is really lean into innovation. Remember, uh, one of the key insights from our research amid this crisis has been that, uh, that COVID-19 and, and so forth has really accelerated so many different uptrends. Uh, another, another aspect uh, that we've seen is that the, the crucible of this crisis is forging uh, just a ton of innovation, not only just to cope with the crisis, but also to help adjust to, again, what is commonly described as the, the new normal. Uh, so, so those are a couple of things. And then third, I would, I would say really uh, pay attention to consumer behavior, because that's another thing that we've well documented in this crisis, is there's been no shortage of shifts in consumer behavior. And as we're all consumers, we can probably think uh, quickly about how a number of our behaviors, not just with remote work, but ordering ordering groceries online and have them shipped to our home or, or maybe curbside pickup and so forth. A lot of services that previously were discretionary have now become, in a lot of ways, essential. So just keep an eye on the consumers, certainly if that is uh, crucial to your business, uh, because those behaviors and even attitudes and opinions about technology, uh, like drone delivery and other things, are are changing, and uh, quite happily, uh, there's uh, increasing favorability for a lot of this innovation. So what does it all add up to? I think opportunity. There, there's a lot of emerging opportunity. Uh, you just have to keep your, your ear to the ground for that and, and your eyes open, uh, as Evan said, uh, because a, a lot of change is happening, uh, and uh, victory will be to those who, who can really seize those opportunities. Pivoting faster, yeah. Tracy, your thoughts on it, winners, losers? Yeah, absolutely. You're making me think that uh, when the paradigm shifts, everyone goes back to zero, right? Like when the paradigm shifted from buggies to cars, buggy whips are, weren't being sold anymore. So this is that time. So I think one of the things is to think about empathy for the user. This gets to some of your comments, Steve. Design thinking and the brilliance of design thinking is about empathy for the user. If we really think about what do users need, what do they need differently, that is where the money will be. That is where the success will be. That is where the value equation will be. The second thing I think we need to think about is culture. What's happened right now, company culture, what's happened right now is there's a power shift from employees to employers because of the high levels of unemployment right now. But companies still need to think about their culture and in the moment when they've got all the power, they need to make sure that they're attending to their culture and they're treating people well because when you treat people well, it's the right thing to do and it's good for the business. So that will really um, drive some of the winning. 
the other thing we got all you techies on the call and I love our technical conversation and technology conversation. The other huge opportunity is for us to figure out how technology can help us connect in real ways. One of the things that's exhausting is that it's hard to get in sync. We all want this limbic resonance where we're mirroring, where we're in sync with who we're talking to. And that's almost impossible to do when we're looking at multiple screens and we can't get a feel for nuance and micro expression and nonverbals. But when our technology gets us to a place where we can get that level of feeling of connection and humanity, that will be a new place for sure. So I think that's all, all good opportunity for the future. Wouldn't it be cool if VR and AR were ready for this crisis? I don't think they were. <laughs> yes. they, will, they will be for the next one. But yeah. uh, that, that, that's definitely something to think about. Evan, you haven't gone yet. What do you think your suggestions on winners and losers? Well, we all have this love-hate relationship with social media and social media platforms. But I think the really exciting thing that I'm following, uh, the emergence of niche social media networks and communities, everyone now, of course, is focused on hyper-local and, you know, maybe getting to know your neighbors and your community more through the crisis. And I think social media that brings people together locally and brings people together with, you know, very narrow common interests is going to be super successful, whether it's something like Nextdoor, uh, the, the social media network for neighborhoods or things like house party, the kind of the uh, Zoom for the rest of the consumer world and Reddit and Quora and subreddits. And there's a whole world out there of social media that's not, you know, Facebook and Twitter or LinkedIn. So I think the rise of these niche communities is really compelling and people will feel, you know, much more connected through those communities than they might through, you know, just another Facebook uh, engagement. Well, as a salt and pepper hair digital immigrant, you've now made me very concerned that I need to get up to speed on more things, although I do have a cousin that works for Reddit as a Redditor. But anyway, um, thank you all very much. This has been an, an exciting and enlightening conversation. I want to make sure that everybody who's watching knows how to reach out to any one of you. So, uh, Tracy, let's start with you. How would somebody get in touch with you if they wanted to find out more about what you do? They can look me up on tracybrower.com or LinkedIn. I'm Tracy Brower, PhD, or steelcase.com for our company website. Terrific. Thanks very much for joining us. Steve, how would somebody find out more about you and more about the CTA? Listeners can connect with our thinking at cta.tech research, or you can email me personally at skonig at cta.tech. Great. Thanks very much, Steve. I really appreciate it. Erwin, how would somebody reach out to you? Yeah, best way to find me is at I-M-L-A-Z-A-R on Twitter, uh, also available on LinkedIn. Great. Thanks very much. Evan, how does somebody find you? How does somebody avoid finding you? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, you know who I am as one of my favorites, uh, let's say out of San Diego. But um, yeah, Twitter, just connect there, Evan Kerstell. Look forward to chatting. Terrific. Thanks very much. And you and I had an in-person interview at CES last year, and hopefully we'll be able to do it again. Seems like a, seems like a universe ago. Yeah, trying to keep my fingers crossed on that one. Tim, uh, our our friend and host, how do we uh, find out more about AV Nation? What you are doing? Oh, AV Nation. Uh, we actually have a brand new website uh, as of like two or three weeks ago. So yeah, go go, go there, uh, avnation.tv, avnation.tv. You'll find this and, and a bunch of other uh, programs just like it. Terrific. To all of my guests, thank you very much. This has been really fun and exciting. And I think we owe it to everybody to get back together in like six months or a year and figure out whether we got any of these guesses right or anything wrong or missed anything that we should have seen. That's always what this uh, future thinking looks like. Uh, for, for all of my guests, for uh, Aviation TV, for the IMCCA, I'm David Danto. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you on the next one. Bye.